Hello and bienvenido San Antonio. Welcome to the Alamo Hour, discussing the people, places, and passion that make our city. My name is Justin Hill, a local attorney, a proud San Antonioan, and keeper of chickens and bees. On the Alamo Hour, you'll get to hear from the people that make San Antonio great and unique and the best kept secret in Texas. We're glad that you're here. All right, welcome to the Alamo Hour. Today's guest is Dr. Carrie Lattimore. Uh, Dr. Lattimore is a professor of African American Studies and other classes at Trinity University. He got his PhD from Emory. He's written extensively. He's won many awards. He was recently tapped by the city to share some of his thoughts uh, and some of his research regarding the Alamo um, Plaza project and some decisions on what to do with some of the surrounding buildings. Uh, we've asked Dr. Lattimore to be on here. We asked previously to all of the protests in the city and some of the issues that have arisen since then, but the timing couldn't be better. So thank you, Dr. Lattimore, for being here today. Thank you, Justin. It's my honor to be here. Uh, we had a fantastic conversation before we got uh, to start recording, yes. which we should have recorded, but we'll probably recover some of that. But And a long time ago, too. We talked about a month or so ago. Yeah, for about an hour. Yeah, yeah, it was a great conversation. And all this other stuff. We were introduced through Dr. Lesh, who was your best man in your wedding yes. and is a friend of the show. He's probably, I'm not going to kid, he's probably the biggest supporter of what I'm doing here, and I can't thank him enough. David's a good man. Yeah, he is. Um, I'm sure he's listening to that, too. He will be listening. Um, so it's funny. Dr. Lesh will give me opinions and what to ask, and he'll... He, I think with you, he was like, well, ask him how we met. Or I can't remember what it was, but he always he has to be a part of everything. You've listened to some of the shows. Every show, we start with a top 10. I've read some interviews you've done with a newspaper. I've read some interviews you've done with Trinity's getting to know a professor, mm -hmm. basically anything I could find. I've read, I've watched some videos. I found a few things I want to talk about. Know? Well, the internet has a lot <laughs> of things out there compared to some people. You're fine. You don't have anything that, uh, you really, there's really not a ton out there. Um, That's you good. academics, you know, y'all's research is in books that cost $250 a right. piece. So I don't, you know, I tried to buy a Lesh book and I don't get the Lesh special, even though I know him. So I had to pay, I only bought the one that was $9. I'm not going to lie. I wouldn't buy any of his other books. Were you at his um, book, book? I was not. I, I had a class that night. It was uh, interesting. It was like a book release party for two books at once or something. Well, that's how Les rolls. He did a reading of his book, and I, I it was hard to take it seriously, honestly, because I know Les socially. I don't mm -hmm. know him as an academic. Um, so I was I didn't realize how austere and dry those events were. Well, Lesh is, has a very powerful presence, too. I mean, in he does? In the classroom, he <laughs> is extraordinarily, and I'm not saying anything that he wouldn't agree with, he has an extraordinary presence. Yeah, I believe that. And so there are some students who are afraid of him. I believe that. And, of course, then he's very tall, and he's got that baseball background. Yeah. And so people are not used to having their college professor being a former baseball player. Yeah. And drafted, I think, in the first round, something like that. I mean, he's a different He's a real deal. Of, yeah. Uh, and I think that's one thing that um, is always fun with uh, hanging out with him because me and our mutual friend, Tim, uh, we just see him as our friend. So we right. don't give him any extra deference. And, you know, that's hard for him to take for the first, you know, 20 <laughs> minutes. All right. So top 10, we're going to get through some stuff. Uh, then we're going to spend some time talking about your areas of research. I want to talk to you about your teaching philosophy. I think mm -hmm. that's interesting. Uh, I went to law school at Baylor, which still employs the paper chase style Socratic method. And you're up on your feet, it's in your face, and if you don't know, you get kicked out of class. I mean, it was a very intense environment. So let's start with when and why did you move to San Antonio? Trinity University was the when and the why. Um, I did not know a lot about Trinity before I came here, but 
Um, I was at when I was at Emory University finishing up my PhD. I, one of the things that happens in academia is you have these hiring cycles. And so it's a long, really a year-long process that begins um, really at the end of the summer. And so all of these universities really post their jobs, at least for history, probably around August or September. And so there are a couple of different places where we find out who's interested in hiring somebody. And so I looked at these places, and Trinity University was looking for a historian in my area. And so it was one of the six or seven universities that I applied to. And so that happened in there. Um, around October, I think the search, theoretically, the application period ended. And in December, they contacted me saying that they were interested in having a future conversation with me at the American Historical Association meeting, which is these all academic fields have these huge meetings. Okay. Um, and there are thousands of people that will go. And for the AHA, it's usually in a very cold environment. And when I say cold, I mean they're going to meet in Chicago, they're going to meet in New York, they're going to meet in D.C., and it's going to be the first week of January. So you know it's going to be cold. <laughs> and so you're bringing all these people to D.C. or somewhere, some cold environment, and all of these people are looking for jobs, in addition to other things that they do at the regular meeting. I was just a young kid. I'd never done a job interview before. So yeah. I knew that there were probably about 10 other people that were interviewing for that same position, or 12. They bring you up for... A, half hour long meeting and there was a table of about seven faculty members at Trinity there and I was this one guy surrounded by these Jeez. faculty members talk about a power dynamic yeah. there and you know, I'm sitting there trying to answer <laughs> questions right and I was so young I probably didn't even think about it at that time and so they interviewed me um, then I got called back to a second interview the next day they said we'd like to talk to you again I'm like gosh I guess I'm doing a good job yeah. and so I came back, they talked to me for about another 45 minutes to an hour, and then they said, well, well, you know, you'll hear from us at some point in time. And so then in January, um, a couple weeks later, I received a call saying, we'd like you to come to San Antonio and um, talk to us a little bit more. So I got on a bus, and I got on a bus, got on a plane, came to San Antonio, and over a two-day period, they took me around the university, they talked to me, I had to present my research and other kinds of things. Then I went home. They said, well, we'll, we'll talk to you later. And uh, so I get a call probably three weeks later offering me the job. What a process. So it's a long, yeah. huge process. It's not just you go and you find it the next day. Everything in academia is long drawn out. Getting a PhD is six or seven years. It's <laughs> long drawn out. Yeah. Getting tenure is long and drawn out. So we make things seem much longer than they actually need to be. But that's how I ended up in Texas. What year was that? That was in 2004 when okay. I started. All right. Um, and Trinity is very similar to my undergrad, the University of Richmond. Um, small liberal arts, um, really pays attention to teaching. Um, they care about research. Um, a great university and a great city. Yeah. You know, Richmond is obviously different from San Antonio, sure. but in many ways, Texas and Virginia share some commonalities. Sure. Both states kind of think that they are the state. Um, we in Virginia. And I, I didn't know Virginia myself, had that chip on its shoulder. The Commonwealth of Virginia. <laughs> the the first, the, the you know, when you were in Virginia, we have the most presidents from our state. You know, the history of All our right. state. I mean, when you take Virginia history in fourth grade, it is okay. hammered into yeah. you the, the prominence. They don't have the Alamo, though. Of Virginia. They don't have the Alamo. <laughs> Um, but, you know, we do have aspects of history, sure. the Confederacy, and, you know, the end of the Revolutionary War was in, you know, so you got Cornwallis's cave and Colonial Williamsburg and all of these yeah. different aspects of Virginia. And 
I think there's a bit of arrogance to Virginians about who they are. And the same thing about Texans. I mean, in Virginia, the biggest thing that people want to be is a FFV, which is the first family of Virginia. Oh, geez. And it's almost like, I guess, the daughters of the Alamo or the, the, you know, people trace their history back to. uh, People that were at the Alamo. Exactly. People who were at the Alamo or these other families and major land grant families. And so these two states share some things in common. And so Trinity was in a place that was a really good place at that time um, and still is very similar to where I felt my university was when I started um, as an undergrad at the University of Richmond. So it was kind of like going home in a sense. And San Antonio is a really cool city. I love it. Think about it. Yeah. And so Trinity was my first choice of universities and I got my first choice. And so I guess the rest is the rest. So I don't want you to get into it because I just don't, I don't think I want to know, but what is the title of your dissertation? I always think those are fun to hear. Always a minority. Um, Annabellum free blacks in the civil, um, civil war era. I think that was what the title. Okay. That's pretty normal. I mean, you hear some that are just off the wall. Well, always as a minority, always a minority. Then you have the colon sure, and then the rest of, you know, every dissertation topic is going to have the, the, the little cool thing. And then the explanation after the colon. But you know what I'm talking about. Some are just absurd. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And um, some of them are, mine was only like 200 pages. Oh. Some of them are much, much, much. How many footnotes? Hundreds. Okay. Because you have to. Yeah, of course. Um, What are your main sources of news? Lots of different things. I've started asking this because Um, news has become such a hot topic. Um. It's going to sound cliche, but CNN is a source for me. I mean, I always go through CNN. And then I do, in an odd way, I do searches. Yeah. So I'm interested in different subjects. And so I do subject searches and find what's there and look at the kind of, maybe the historian to me looks at the provenance and, and where the different, you know, where's that source coming from? Yeah. And um, obviously I'm looking at MSNBC. I'll even check out Fox. Yeah. Um, for me, as many sources as I can get, that's what interests That's my me. take on it. Of course, the Express News yeah. and, of course, the Rivard, um, all those different. So Rivard was very clear to tell me that he reads the Express, like uh, SanAntonioExpress.com or ExpressNews.com, but not MySA.com. I didn't realize those were so, you know, independent of one another. Yeah, I never thought about that. Yeah, I'm I didn't just, either. No, I'm no. just finding the news because I, and I guess because of what I do and doing social history, African-American social history, you're finding whatever you can. And so there's not sure. like this, that's not, not always a treasure trove of research for you. Yeah. And so you're getting pieces and shards and, 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 a, and a bit here and a bit there and you bring it together and then you evaluate it. Um, and I think that's prepared me for the kind of society that we live in now in which you don't always know the validity of a source unless if you test it. Right. And I, that's something that I try to do with my students is trying to help them move through the process of how do you evaluate sources. And one of the ways of doing it is you kind of find out where things are coming from. You look at it comparing to other things, um, who's writing something. And I think it's kind of the same thing that we have to do when we look at news today because there's yeah. a lot of news out there. 
I mean, and there's so much that's not news there. that calls itself news. Exactly. All right. Uh, hidden gems in San Antonio. We do this with everybody. Um, you know, for me, things like the the, the tea garden, mm-hmm. uh, the further out missions. Those are some mm-hmm. things when I first moved here, I didn't know they existed. Mm-hmm. And I think, oh, if you're coming to San Antonio, you got to go away from that and go check out some of these things. Do you have any, any hidden gems in San Antonio you recommend? Susie's Lumpia House. I've never even heard of this. Um, <coughs> it's a Filipino restaurant okay. in Culebra. Okay. Is it still open? I think, you know, with COVID, I always have to ask because I haven't, you know, you never know. You reached around and asked your wife. Yeah, just so people, wife, who's it, Filipino. So you don't look crazy asking yeah. the wall or something. I'm always asking. <laughs> my students think I'm doing that, but I'm. Susie's Lumpia House. Yes, it's on Colabra Road. Is that L-U-M-P-I-A? Yeah, yes. Okay. Um, an amazing Filipino restaurant. On Saturdays, they typically offer a buffet, um, which I don't know how that's working with COVID yeah. these days, but they have a great, you know, they have some great. Go-to dish. Chicken adobo. Adobo? Mm-hmm. Okay. A-D-O-B-O. Anything else? Um, they have these great shrimp, um, but I don't, um, I, there's a word that they call it, but I can't think, just whatever, they're shrimp. Just okay. go, go for their shrimp. It's really good. All right. I have never eaten Filipi- Filipino food in San Antonio. Um, and the pork adobo was good, too, if you okay. like pork. I'm not a big Adobo is the sauce, I assume. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind okay. of a vinegary. At this place, it's more of a vinegary type salt base. All right. Kind of like um, the the barbecue you're used to, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, exactly. In yeah. Virginia, we do vinegar is a very, yeah. which I guess is why Susie's limp. It reminds me of certain okay. Virginia things. Sure. Um, now, some Filipino restaurants are a little more sweet based than the vinegar based, depending on the island that they're from. But huh. these people are actually from the island of Samar, okay. which is a more centrally located island. There's um, is there a hundred islands in the Philippines? It's there, there's tons of them, thousands. right? Okay, all right. Thousands inhabited, hundred, mm-hmm. yeah, and th- and hundreds of languages as well. Oh wow! Each one of those islands often has their own language. I huh. call it a language because sometimes we classify something as a dialect, and it's really a language. Yeah. But a dialect almost makes it sound like it's not real and legitimate. Sure. Versus a language when we say that that's something that's different and distinct. Yeah. Um, I may have a southern dialect, but it's an English language. Right. Um, these are real languages that are distinct. Okay. Um, what are you teaching currently? Currently, I'm on leave. Okay. Um, what was the last the classes but, you taught? <laughs> <laughs> the last the semester uh, that just ended, I taught the African-American experience since Reconstruction. And I also taught a course on the Old South, which looks at southern politics, race, economics, um, really from the beginning, and when I say the beginning, looking at a little bit of the indigenous um, population in the South um, in, in the early period on up through colonization through the Civil War. Does the South cover Texas in your class? It does. Okay. Do you consider um, Texas to be part of the South? I do. All of it or kind um, of the dividing line? It's hard to cut up a state, but I do think that West Texas is not really southern. It's more the southwest. It's the southwest. And East Texas is more the south. East Texas, you know, you've got cotton. Um, Although you do have slavery in San Antonio, and you do have, you know, you have um, out in Wilson County and and Seguin and all those that there, these are pockets there. And you, but there's a different feel in the western, southwestern Texas than there is in eastern Texas, which is very you know, where you have strong cotton-based yeah. stuff. And, you know, as you move out from there to Dallas and you see the migrations, um, African-Americans after the Civil War certainly migrating in this area, although there's some stuff happening here, there is 
this is a South and West yeah. city. Um, but Texas, you know, it is part of the Confederacy. Um, and so I, it's an interesting state. Yeah, it's debated a lot. It's discussed a lot. Yeah. yeah whether we and, were really part of the South. You know, the question of this whole class is really, is there a South? Okay. Um, and I think that there is, but it doesn't start as. Um, and so throughout the class, we, I ask them questions of, is it a South now? Is it a South mm. now? And so as we move through the timeline, I think the students start to see, yeah, now things are starting to develop agriculturally, politically, socially. There's something that's linking these people because there must be something that's linking people, obviously slavery, yeah. but there must be something that brings people to succeed, to succeed from something else. Right. There must be something to succeed from. Um, and there must be something aware this other group is pulling themselves further away. And so as the two sides of this coin are pulling away, what's coalescing around to create something that can be identified when we think South? Yeah. Slavery. Yeah. 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 And when, so when people say that the civil war has nothing to do with slavery, I'm like, Oh really? (laughs) He says that. There was some, no. you know, there are some people, I mean, growing up I know, where I did, there I know. were a lot of people who would say that you hear it on the news still had everything about taxes yeah. and, and Lincoln and states and rights, states rights. Yeah. yeah. And then you read the cornerstone speech and then you look at, you know, the, then you look at, you know, the Confederate constitution and then you think about how the South felt for such a long period of time that people were trying to push in on them. You read Calhoun's speeches that he was giving yeah. about, you know, Slavery, a positive good, is what John C. Calhoun says, and that if we don't stop this, this whole seed of abolitionism is going to really infringe upon us. I had no idea how much money those uh, cotton plantations made in today's dollars. I was reading an article, and it said by today's dollars. I mean, I want to say it was something like $80 million a year is what a moderately successful cotton plantation was doing back then. <coughs> and you start seeing how those families that have the political power are looking at giving up $80 million a year. I mean, obviously, it had to do with slavery. I just mm-hmm. didn't realize the dollar figures yes. involved. Slavery is a social system, but it's also an economic system. Sure. And when you start to think about, you know, when you go through census records, and, they, and the census records of that period, each of those 10 years, they're going to show real property and personal property. And the slaves are listed in the real property. Huh. And so they are real assets. Yeah. Um, if a person dies... And their assets have to be divided. As a lawyer, you know that includes slaves. Hmm. So these aren't these aren't by law people yeah. theoretically. These are things. And so, for, even if you wanted to free a slave, you may not be able to do it if you have debts. And so all of it's tied into this. Not to say that many people wanted to do that and got right. caught up by debt, but it is their money. It is their source, and it's where for many of these slave masters where so much of their money is tied into slaves are more valuable than land in a sense. Yeah. Um, now you have lots of land that has large value, but those slaves have even more value per person. Sure. Think of per acre, you know, per acre is cheap, but per slave, that's a different story. So, yeah. And even over the last 30 to 40 years of the antebellum period, the number of slave owners gets smaller but the percentage of the number of slaves that they own gets larger, and so the the wealthy slaveholders get more wealthy. Just like anything else, they yeah. start to centralize. Yes. Yeah. You know, we talked about income inequality. 
slavery was a period in time of severe income inequality. Yeah, yeah it is better. Um, okay, we're going to get in. Well, you know, every one of these is so great. That, that's why I like it because I could talk. I could get into these rabbit trails for a long time. And I mean, I just want I think I'm going to go audit your class one day if that's okay. Come on in. <laughs> uh, Les just told me I can, but I think he would, if you listened to this episode, he has a problem giggling when he's around me. So uh, <laughs> did you listen to it? I did not. You should listen, listen to it. I mean, he gets, the, giggle? he gets the giggles for a solid 10 minutes. I mean, it's, Lesh. you should watch the YouTube videos, what you should watch. Cause he's on there giggling. Yes. Lesh. Yes. <laughs> we have a different, you know, different kind of friendship. Do you have any hobbies outside of your academic work? Well, I like computer <laughs> apps. I, I like my phone apps. Okay. So um, right now I am playing, um, let's see here. What do I have on my? Panda cell? Pop? No. Snood? I'm Madden NFL and oh, RBI po- 20 are the two that I'm working on. I didn't on know right they had now. those games on there. Yeah. Do you ever do Lumosity, the brain trainer? No, I, I do. I like it. I, I like Things that don't make me think on, on okay on yeah sometimes it gives me a headache yeah I, I do you know when I come home from teaching and researching I want to play something like an old video game I was an old Nintendo yeah. Atari you know I started with Atari twenty six hundred or twenty seven hundred then I went to Nintendo Nintendo sixteen bit after that super that was Super Nintendo. I did all of the video games I had so, the Sega Master System Sega say I had Sega Genesis so that was after. So the first one was a Sega Master System that had a cartridge option, but also mm-hmm. a card option. So then I went into the Genesis. So I was a game person. Okay. I, I remember that was probably, in addition to being a truck driver. <laughs> We're going to um, get there. <laughs> what I really wanted to do was also to work with Nintendo Powers, a magazine back in the day. I remember. and Real thick magazine. Yeah, it yeah. was a real thick <laughs> yeah. magazine. And I always thought that I wanted to be one of these gaming per- people. So did you love the movie with uh, Fred Savage, The Wizard? Do you remember? Yeah. Yeah. And he he gave us the secret way to get up in the dungeon and find the... I wanted to be a gamer. Yeah. But it didn't quite end up that way. I love the idea that playing on your phone is a hobby. So I'm going to use that in life. I'm not messing on my phone. This is a hobby. I'm I'm going to go with that. I see it as a hobby. Now, my wife loves gardening, and every now and then I help her out there. Um, But I really see the games as like... I'm with you. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So this is probably the most important question of your top 10. Uh, and then we're going to speed through these so we can get into the meat. You put in one of the articles I read that uh, preparing for class, you like to listen to music, but also preparing mm-hmm. for class, you listen to music. R&B is one of the areas. I don't know enough. Not going to get in there. But mm-hmm. 80s, 90s rap was mm-hmm. something you listed. Um, who, are, who are your 80s, 90s rap groups that you still go back to? You know, LL Cool J. Okay, all right. And, you know, people think that he's, you know, not as hard-hitting as some of the others, but one of the first, some of the earliest rappers that I remember um, were probably Houdini, which comes out in about 84, 83, 84. So this is kind of the beginning. Um, Then you had Grandmaster Flash. Okay. Did a song called The Message, which I really go back to now and even use in my course. But they weren't cool as LL Cool J was when he came up with Mama Said Knock You Out. Yeah. And then you had the MTV unplug thing. But LL Cool J for me just seemed hard at that point in time when I was probably a 14-year-old young What man. year would that have, that song have Mama come out? Mama Said Knock You Out I think was 89. Okay. Don't hold me to it, but I think it was 1989 or 90, somewhere in there. And music in that time period is changing 
as kind of what we refer to as New Jack Swing. Yeah. And so with Keith Sweat, Bobby Brown, you get a more hard edge sound music that's kind of That's more R and B though, right? It is R and B, but it's it's linked with hip hop. And so the sounds are much more hard hitting yeah. than say the sounds of a Freddie Jackson or a Luther Vandross or a Whitney sure. Houston, um, which is much more pop centered. Yeah. And so that later eighties through probably ninety five or whatever, that's the period of time which I'm listening to. And so L O Cool J is there. I was in the public enemy. Okay. When, you know, I was there. So I kind of had a I running was, list before you got here of what I, I thought Tupac. you were going to say. LL Cool J was not on the list. I was into Tupac. Okay. Um, of course, MC Hammer was around. <laughs> I had that time. on the list. <laughs> um, but it, it was it was really LL Cool J for me. Um, I'm not going to lie. It's probably getting me in trouble, but I also listened to Two Live Crew. Okay. At that time. NWA? NWA, of course. All right. My mother was the one who bought the Two Live Crew um, nice. Way to go, mom. Well, she had to because I was too young and as nasty as they want to be, <laughs> that had the parental advisory, so they would not allow me to purchase it. So I told my mother, I really want to listen to this. And she was like, okay, we're going to listen to this. <laughs> and um, then she said, but if I buy this for you, we have to listen to it together. And so we had this cassette tape and because it's a cassette tape yeah. at that time. And so we were in Newport News, which was about 50 miles from where I grew up because I grew up in a rural area. There was no radio, you know, no place to buy any CDs or, or cassettes there. So I had to go to Newport News, a big city, right? And so I had to listen to As Nasty As They Want to Be <laughs> with my mother alone on a 50-mile return trip. And I could just see my mother driving and shaking as she was listening to the lyrics. And so we drive into the the, the yard, and I'm like, she looks at me, and I look at her, and we don't quite know what to say to each other. <laughs> and I said, what did you think about that, Mama? And I just heard a silence. And she said, well, it had a good beat. <laughs> but let's talk about the rest of it, son. <laughs> the misogyny and everything So did she else. let you keep the album at that? She did. All right. My mother's a music teacher. So okay. she was always, she never believed in censoring anything. Good for her. And... That was important to her, but she saw it as a teachable moment. Yeah. And so she pointed out to me the things in it that she did not agree with and that she would hope that I would not repeat. Yeah. But she also said that it was a perspective that I needed to understand. Good. Good for her. My parents let me listen to and watch everything, and I'm still just, uh, you know, I'm ravenous with movies and music because they let me do it. Now, my father never said anything about it. He never listened to it. (laughs) He probably wouldn't have liked it. Probably not. Um, okay. Um, we've gone through. We're going to lightning round here real quick. Do you have a favorite Fiesta event? Taste of New Orleans. Okay. I haven't been in a few years. It's been a couple of years, but that's my favorite. And what on earth is it about being a truck driver that was your listed <laughs> chosen occupation if you were not a professor? And have you watched Over the Top, the movie? I did, okay. but that wasn't the movie that did it for me. It goes back a few years, Smokey okay. and the Bandit. All right, all right. And because my father, in addition to being a magistrate, was also a fiberglass boat repairsman. And so we had a lot of trucks that would come in and be to be repaired. And so you'd have these big trucks, these tractor trailers, and I would go into the tractor trailer and look around and, you know, kind of like play with the thing. And if we were moving them around, my father would move it around and I would be in the tractor 
I mean, on the tractor trailer. And so I think that growing up in that environment, um, and my county's name was Middlesex, yeah. and we would kind of say it was in the middle of nowhere. Um, to get to a mall, it was over 50 miles. To get to, say, a McDonald's, it was 25 miles. Mm. Um, a bowling alley was 20. Um, basically, there was nothing there growing up. And so I always envisioned the truckers as a people who got to see the world yeah, and that they would be on their CBs and they would talk. And I guess I always dreamed about meeting different kinds of people and going somewhere and just the thought of just riding around the country. It was exciting to me. And then smoking the bandit, which you know, for all of its problems, everybody was watching when I was young. And you just think of taking beer across the state lines or whatever they were doing <laughs> in the first one. And, you know, I love Trans Am. I, I wanted a Trans Am when I yeah. was a kid. I wanted those kinds of things. And to drive a truck was just the kind of lifestyle that I wanted to live. There is that romanticism to it. Yeah. But you also put in your interview that it was the open road, see America, CBs, but you also put truck stops. Have you have you been to a truck stop lately? There's very little romantic about There's a truck very, stop. But it's not like that. You don't see that in the... <laughs> not in the movies. You don't see that in the movies. <laughs> and, you know, I think... When you grow up in a place of where people would hang out at a local fish market, and that's what you would do yeah. on Saturday nights or Friday nights, um, or you would just go 50 miles um, just going somewhere. And I think most of us had a dream of just going somewhere. Yeah. Not that we hated where we grew up, but we knew that there had to be something else out there, and we wanted to seek it. And, you know, most of the people never really got out. Like my father, he... Went to, you know, he was in Carrillo. My mother came from another area, but so many people never got outside of the three or four county area. And so we kind of dreamed about that. Yeah. I think a lot of kids have those dreams. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in a small town and luckily I got out, but a lot of people don't. And it was also a simple, you know, when you think about it, it was a life available that was achievable. And so people where I grew up, you know, fish, you know, many jobs were like fishing, oystering, um, Truck drive was a little bit a step above that in okay. a sense. Farming, um, those are very hard fields to enter, especially in the time period that I was growing up. Right. Our parents or grandparents, it was much easier to be a farmer then because you didn't have to have huge swaths of land. Right. And so farming became much more mechanized. It became much more bigger. You had to have larger pieces of land, and so the people were able to do it. They rented. They had their own land, but they rented numerous other lots. Right. And putting them together, and it was a very expensive thing. You can drive a truck. Yeah. And make your own hours. Insurance. Yeah. Make your own hours. Meet different people. Talk on CBs, which I thought was cool <laughs> right there. I mean, we had a CB when I was growing up. My parents had, you know, some of the cars that we had, we had CBs. And so I just loved doing, working on the My CB. My uncle had one, and I thought it was so cool. Yeah. If you could ever get him to respond to you, exactly. that was super cool. Yeah. Exactly. And I mean, still, when I, see a, when I see a tractor trailer, I love it. Yeah. It's just something about it. When I see them riding down, I love pulling a set next to them. And It's the things that we loved as kids we still kind of love. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, okay, well, I want to change gears, and I want to talk to you um, about some different things. You and I had a long conversation prior to really all of this happening uh, in the news, generally about what I want to talk about, your areas of expertise. And really at that time, I wanted to have you on and just have a discussion about San Antonio's um, sort of racial disparity or racial justice mm -hmm. history to the extent you know it and just have a discussion because mm -hmm. I don't think it gets talked about much in terms of San Antonio. You hear about it in terms of other cities. In the meantime, we had the George Floyd incident, and San Antonio now has sort of a non nonstop um, 
protest going on. And I'm not going to, Mr. Rivard, correct me when I said riots. We really haven't had riots. Yeah. We had some windows broken and things like that. But San Antonio, for the most part, we treat people with respect and we do our best to keep mm -hmm. our city nice. I want to talk to you about a few things that I have sort of noticed. I want you to correct me where I'm wrong in an if and where I am wrong. One of the things that sort of I have noticed um, just generally with what is going on seems to be kind of the lack of clear messaging from protesters and from people uh, in affected communities. Have you seen or do you see sort of a lack of clear messaging? And, and what do you think should be the purpose of this moment and opportunity in America? I, I think there is a message, message kind of crystallizing. But I do think that there are different sides that have different interests sure. and perspectives. Um, I think there is a side of where maybe I think the majority lie, and that's in what happened with George Floyd, um, Ahmaud Aubrey, and all these other issues are just horrible. Yeah. And as a nation, we need to come together to do something about that, and that includes the area of policing. Um, and how do we get a hold of what's happening and then perhaps maybe trying to understand what black men feel um, in that type of environment. And I'll talk about that as a second, as an African-American man. I think there are some others who are talking now defunding the police and other kinds of issues. Um, I'm not on that side, um, but I am on the side of accountability for police. Right. And I think that there are some things that we can do as a city of course, we have a police contract, and we have to uphold right. that contract. And so I think we all have to recognize that you know we're a society of laws and contracts, and we have to fulfill those things. But then maybe at that next contract thing, there are things that could be done. And I would think that the police would want to do that to be accountable. Um, there are some who would say um, police, you know, the question is how do we make them accountable in a fair way as well? Um, I don't necessarily support initiatives that say that the community will assess cops. I mean, I'm uncomfortable with that with my own understanding of assessment in academia. Right. Student evaluations. Sure. Um, they aren't always, there are lots of things that go into those evaluations. So if we do that, we have to make sure that it's fair as well. Now, I think that there is a side of more of the protesters, and I would say, you know, even beyond that, another group that goes beyond the protesters that perhaps really want a complete transformation of American society. Right. So I think that there are these two competing issues, um, or three or four, many different ones, and I think the interesting part will be figuring out how... I think there's a coalition growing around policing. I think there's a coalition growing around the larger issues, which are income inequality, and that I'm glad to see that we're now just not talking about income inequality in the abstract, but specifically looking at the fact that the black household basically is going to have about white wealth is going to be probably about 10 times more, more than black wealth yeah. in this time. And there are historical reasons why that exists. And there's a reason why it exists here in San Antonio. Um, I think those are issues that maybe this is the point in time in which we can start to look at it and maybe look at, ways of alleviating those issues. Those are hard issues. Very hard. And then there are other people who are talking about <laughs> reparations. And I won't go into reparations, um, but there are other people who believe that that's a way of addressing historical inequities. And so there's a lot of things going on because 
American, America's interaction and race in America is so broad and so vast. It's not a one-stop shop. It's not a simple answer. It's, it's pervasive. I mean, I think if you really don't have race, you probably really don't even have America. Right. And the reason why I say that is our, our founders talked about basically being enslaved, and they saw themselves almost as the slaves of the British. Mm. Well, that's kind of a, you know, when you think about what they saw, they would look out from their plantations and see people who were not free, and then they come and write documents that talk about freedom. <laughs> and so it's, I think, part of our DNA. Whether we have ancestors who were slave owners or not, I think it's kind of tied into the American DNA. Uh, a 13th, 14th Amendment, and 15th Amendments that we all rely on really are about race. They are. Um, and so you look at so much, even women's rights was, you know, the fight over that dealt with race too. Right. Um, so you can't entang- disentangle just police violence from the broader issue. And I think that that's why it probably seems lots of different issues because it's too much to attack. In and a and sense. that's, and that's sort of my, my question. Well, first of all, I want to point out, there's one of the articles where you talk about how your personal story includes uh, ancestors who were slaves as well as ancestors uh-huh. who were slave owners, which I think people that go back far enough in America probably find that within their DNA. So you have a different perspective. One of the things that I'm concerned about um during these protests is the opportunity may be lost because there is this scattershot approach. And, and I talk about it in terms of if you go onto YouTube and you just play um, whatever, a speech by Bill Clinton, mm-hmm. and you let it play, it takes more extreme videos yeah. every time. They've done studies. So you end up in these communist videos if you do it. And my concern is sort of the defund the police, if I followed it correctly, kind of came from the demilitarize the police, which... I think there's a lot to be said about how we have structured our police departments mm-hmm. like a military, but then it becomes defund, then right. it becomes abolished, then it becomes right. some other thing. What my question for you is, it seems there's a lack of leadership in the movement. And I don't, I mean, just personally, I don't think Al Sharpton's doing anybody favors by hopping up and being kind of the voice of this movement. He's been, he has his own scandals and own history and probably being one of them. Yeah, and being an informant to the FBI. I mean, he's got this long history of just being in the news because he seems to want to be in the news. Do you think there's a lack of leadership? And how do you think this movement, because I don't want to say it's community. I think there's a lot of mm-hmm. all races yeah. and backgrounds that yes. want to see some change here. But I think the movement lacks a clear voice. Have you noticed that? Do you think there is a clear voice that's going to come out that I maybe am just not grabbing in my own mind? Or what do you think the problem is there? It's a deep question. I'm going to try to get to all <laughs> of the different parts. Of I think there's a way in which the media has acted in this, in which historically when we look at how the media acts, it tries to anoint a black leader. And Fair. so we don't say, who's the white leader of the among white people right, or the Latino leader. But for the last 150 years, we've anointed, sometimes people outside of the African-American community, anointed a person to be the spokesperson. And I don't know if that's necessarily healthy because then it allows individual egos and other kinds of things to kind of dictate the direction of the movement. And drown and, out the movement. And perhaps drown out the movement. Um, 
I think that there is a coalition developing that's a very exciting coalition that includes black, brown, white, all people around a certain number of core issues. Again, the police, what does it feel, the wealth gap. I think those are issues that I think have broad-based support and should be pursued. I think the other issues of defunding, demilitarization, those other things, those are very those are issues that don't bring people together at this point. I think you should work on the things that you can actually accomplish. Yeah. Um, I come from the late 80s and early 90s, and I do remember um, the issues with policing in the late early 90s, and it's not just a drug issue. That was The drug was a part of the problem, but a lot of part of the problem was a lack of funding in police, uh, among police, and that because of that, you had a lot of rogue cops. Right. And, you know, if you look at New Orleans, you look at D.C., um, there were cops who were basically on the streets selling drugs. Not to say that that doesn't, you know, that, but that was kind of, when you're paying cops so little. And so when I hear these kinds of things, you have to convince me that you won't affect their ability to handle the job that they've been allowed to do. Right. Now, the way that we criminalize certain areas, we can take a look at that. So I think that there's some growing consensus that we don't necessarily rehabilitate in our nation. We criminalize. And so I think that those are issues that have broader support than just hacking up everything and creating something anew. Sure. I, I don't think, for me, I believe that you must try to build a consensus. That's the only way that you can actually enact real change. Blowing something up doesn't necessarily, you don't build a consensus over it. The consensus then moves to the other side. Do you think you there's lose the people on the edges? Do you think there is a risk though with the way police departments have become sort of, when I say militarized, I mean the access mm -hmm. to armored vehicles, not just the SWAT, the access mm -hmm. to tactical gear like their special forces in the mm -hmm. military. I remember watching some of those riots in Ferguson and thinking, that looks like a war zone. That doesn't look like a police enforcement. And it's sort of the Stanford prison experiment. Mm -hmm. If you take a, if you put people in that position, they, you know, either consciously or not, take on a different role. Do you right. not think that is is potentially a problem Absolutely. with taking away policing and turning it to almost a military action? I think since the drug, you know, since I would say the crack wars, you yeah. had this increasing militarization of the police. So in even in cities like Los Angeles, you had police just knocking down buildings with tr with tanks, basically. I'm like, dang, we're fighting wars that yeah. don't have the kind of equipment that we're using. Um, and in that sense, when you have that kind of equipment, you are defining the other person as an enemy, and then you can do with them whatever you want to do with them. So certainly the way that we do police work should be taken, that should be taken a look at. And maybe... I don't have a problem of, you know, to disband to disband police or disband that and whatever that means. I don't go in that direction, but certainly looking at how we perceive policing, right? What we perceive as defending people, and we need people to defend. You know, if somebody's at my door, you want to be able to call a cop um, or a police. You know, you don't want to hear, well, we're having a high, you know, high activity night or something right. like that. But we also don't. We don't want to see a scenario in which it's been amped up to the point of where we feel like we have to go to war. When I was a kid, I remember SWAT. Wow, SWAT. They were like the special forces. 
And then mm-hmm. it just seemed that a lot more of them looked like SWAT and a lot more of them had the, the equipment that SWAT mm-hmm. had. And all of a sudden, you you know, the guy walking around with a billy club right. was all of a sudden in full tactical gear. And I'm definitely not for defunding or, you know, doing away with police departments either. But it seems to be there has to be some return to neighborhood policing exactly. on top. And honestly, I don't I'm not saying that about San Antonio, but just generally you're seeing this problem in cities especially some cities that have kind of militarized the police departments. And there has to be accountability too. Yeah. I mean, in any, you know, we can certainly pull the police out and say that they have an accountability problem, but America in a sense has an accountability yeah. problem. And in the world, when you have people put into positions where they're not held accountable by some standard, you got problems. The Catholic church has problems yeah. because of a lack of accountability. Um, and it's not just the Catholic church, by the way, you have plenty evangelical churches that have, people in positions of power that have placed themselves in a position where they will never be held accountable and they do whatever they want to do because for some people having power leads them to destructive behavior. Right. I think within the context of San Antonio, this would be a good way to professors. Yeah. I mean, it happens at all institutions. And then especially when you have an institutional mindset about it from a San Antonio perspective, I think accountability with the police department is a really big thing because if you saw that recent study that came out, 70% 70% of officers that get fired by the chief get reinstated exactly. due to the union contract, highest in America. Um, I've, I've had this discussion with many people and say, look, it's contractual. We have to deal with that right. from a contract side. From a community side, what do you think the community's role is? Is that a voting thing? Do you think we should reach out to the police department? Is there a way to involve the community in the police union to the extent that maybe they don't ask for so much whenever they know it's harmful to a community. I think now is a moment in which that can happen. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, ex- you know, the community ex- exerts a lot of power in a sense through their vote. And in this city, we don't vote, which is a problem. Yeah. And so if the community is saying we need to do this, but the community doesn't vote, and I'm not saying which side a person has to vote, but the fact that if you vote and people know you vote, they're going to be more accountable to you. Right. Um, and I do think that tough questions need to be asked about the union and why do you feel that this, this lack of accountability in a sense is necessary um, in this light? Right. Um, and how do we find a way to come together in good faith? And it seems like some simple tweaks. I think I was exactly. reading that if there was just an independent ch- uh, exactly. arbitrator that was chosen, that that would fix a lot of it. But sounds like the union gets to pick their own arbitrators, and, and that's I think problematic. When the contract comes around, you know, those questions have to be asked. Right. And, and the community has to push hard on specific issues. I don't think that the push on defunding is going to work, but I do think that you should ask for these other things. We do, I think there's a, some type of a committee that works, you know, that should have some oversight. I don't know if it really works. But there has to be oversight. There has to be accountability. And these things have to be baked into that contract. Um, and it should be expressed in them that this is good for them because it will make their job easy. Right. My, I, I mean, think I would want it to. I think I would want to be account as a professor. I want to be held accountable. I want to do my job. And I know that most cops probably do, too. I agree. Teachers, my wife gets, you know, she's held accountable. She's assessed. And if she doesn't meet the standard, then you are given things that you're expected to meet before or and if you can't then eventually you will lose your position on the flip side of that i think i think teachers like your wife are um 
not protected enough They're in not. our state, you know, unlike a union contract for the police, which last I remember it was maybe illegal for teachers to unionize in the state of Texas. So, you know, kind of a flip-flop. Yeah. Teachers are held to a very we high hold, standard. We hold pilots to a high standard. Yeah. I mean, if a pilot has wrecked five times or 16 times, I don't think that they're going to be allowed to get behind a, you know, we have these kinds of background checks. I mean. I would hope if they wreck once an airplane that they're out of the You know, the when game. I see a cop, when a cop has a regular routine check, I want to be able to have faith that I know that that cop has been held accountable. Yeah. Um, I do. I admit I tend to give them the benefit of the doubt. But as an African-American man, there's always this place in the back of my mind. And I would think that the union would want, would try to recognize that and see, we can come here and we can work together on this because it will make their job easier because I'm not necessarily thinking of, you know, do I have to run or will they shoot me in the back? So I think that those are the kinds of questions that can be raised that kind of puts the onus on them to explain why this is not necessary. Because one video like that in a city makes policing harder. Exactly. For all the policemen. Exactly. Let's talk about San Antonio. You're, you're very well known uh, as a man of faith. Uh, you're involved in the faith community on the, the east side. Mm -hmm. uh, Mount Zion, I believe, is a church you attend. Um, has there been any coalescing of the faith communities on the, the, the multiple different uh, faith communities on the east side to come together and try to create some sort of clear messaging or provide support or any sort of involvement where there's some to coming together of the faith communities? Been. The Baptist Ministers Union has always been involved in um, these issues. The Council of Churches for Social Action is another organization that's working. And so there are organizations, I know that they worked closely with NAACP and others. They had a, um, there was a meeting, I think last week with NAACP, the district attorney, Joe Gonzalez, is that right? Yeah. Joe Gonzalez. Um, Javier Salazar is coming into black churches a lot of times. Um, and so there is a, um, a lot of work that the black church is doing. Um, I think that as we move forward, I would expect to see more of that um, because I think that that's an apparatus along with NAACP that is able to express a very clear message um, that can start talking about specific issues that just go beyond the more defund the police. I think sure. there are issues that the NAACP and probably the Baptist Ministers Union and others, I think you'll start to see it there. Um, because right now I think it's such a very saturated time period. But I think that really quickly we're going to start to see that, you know, basically you're not going to be marching every day. Right. I mean, how long is that going to continue? Now we have to come up with agenda items. And I think that that's when you're going to start to see a much more centered thought of how do we harness what's happened and go for things that are actually achievable. Do you think this will be limited to uh, policing reform, or do you think that this opportunity will uh, lead to a broader reform in terms of racial injustice? I would like to see it lead to a broader reform, but if it's just police reform, that's, that's progress. It's a victory. Um, that's huge progress. I mean, these are issues. I mean, if you look at the formation of the Black Panther Party, policing was at the forefront of the formation of the Black Panther Party. I mean, so this issue of policing has not been something that just arrived. I mean, my introduction to it was Rodney King. Right. I, mean, I remember too. that, that gravelly video. I mean, it seems so gravelly now compared to the 
video is so clear now. Have but you watched knew- LA 92, the, the Netflix documentary on right now? I did not. We'll go back and watch it. It, it, re- it sort of takes you through all of it again. and it, It's, you know, I knew what happened. Yeah. I mean, I saw the Billy Clubs, um, and I saw how unjust it was, and I saw that, and I recognized that that could be me. Um, but everybody who's older African-American was talking about the same things. I mean, I talked to people in this city, they were talking about things like that happening here. Um, so if that is the only thing that comes out of it, then that is progress. But I also think that we have to look at the income gap. We have to look at the ways that African-Americans, the, the implicit bias kinds of things, mm-hmm. you know, it's not fair that if you have a certain name that you're less likely to get a job. Yeah. Um, it's not fair or it's not right when somebody looks at you and they call the cops saying that you're threatening them like the person in Central Park. I mean, you're saying, put a leash on your dog, I'm scared. Well, then that's contributing. So if you do that, then what happens if the cops come there and you're told that, and they're told that, well, this person is scaring me. Yeah. Um, if he wasn't videotaping yeah, her, he, he probably would have got arrested. Exactly. Yeah. And so those are the things, you know, there is a policy aspect that can happen, but there also needs to be a personal accountability role that all of us must take. And that's, you know, we've passed... As a lawyer, you know, we've passed hundreds of hundreds of thousands of laws that dealt with race. Right. You know, and that hasn't changed the person's heart. This is the first time I think that I believe that people's hearts have been have been opened, and maybe this is my religious leanings too, but, but people's hearts have been open to having difficult conversations on race. There are people asking questions that I never thought would ask. Right. Um and, you know, with George Floyd, I mean, let's let's take a look at Rodney King to Trayvon Martin to George Floyd and ask what are the differences. With Rodney King, I didn't hear people saying that could be me True. outside of the real African-American community. I mean, there may have been some, but I don't feel a large groundswell of people saying that could be me well, it seemed and like I identify with this person. It also seemed that with that Rodney King – there was kind of already all of the rap and the music right. and the stories about exactly. LAPD and cops words, that were crazy anyway. So right. people kind of had that. About Rodney King came out too. And so there right. were some people who said, well, maybe he did something. I remember my next door neighbor who was a police officer. I was a kid and I, I remember saying something like that's me, whatever a kid says <laughs> that makes you scared as a kid. That's bad as a kid. And I remember him saying something along the lines of he deserved it because he had cocaine in his system something like that and it was just he was a police officer and he was a nice man and there was no thought in his head that that was inappropriate Mm -hmm. you know even with Trayvon Martin there wasn't that kind of a connection I think but for some reason in this moment there seems to be a connection of where you've got people on the far left and the far right from Pat Robertson to the far left saying that what happened here was unjust. Greg Abbott, even. And Greg Abbott yesterday, I believe, mm-hmm. or the day before. And then on top of that, you have not just them saying that it was wrong, but that we have to find a way to heal what has happened. And so even left and right, and I'm going to particularly talk about right, they're talking about something needs to happen, that it just wasn't. And I think it's interesting that they're not just saying, this was just a rogue cop. That's the difference. I mean, that was it the first talking point, to be easy fair. easy to just say that. Exactly. But now it's changed. It has. People say, well, that's just one rogue cop. This Bad Apple was, rogue, was the first thing. And he knew him or they had some relationship. They worked together. Rogue. Yeah. We can't look at this and say anything more. But now people are saying, 
something. I think it's getting drowned out is what I think it is. Because when this first happened, I, I looked at Lindsay and I said, okay, they're going to say, well, he was arrested yeah. in 1997 for this. And exactly. that's the story. He was a bad guy. He deserved it. And I asked Brian, who you met, who's a black gentleman. I said, well, why is this any different than all the others? Why is this a different experience? And he told me, he said it was the look on his face. He said it, the guy was killing a man, looking into a camera with yeah. complete indifference. And I mean, really and think for about it. a long period of time. But then Rodney yeah. King was a long period of time too. True. But time has changed. Yeah. We have a younger group of people who grew up with black people, um, who see black people as their friends, who hung out with them. It's not, George Floyd is not just some black man. Right. George Floyd could be your best friend. He could be your boyfriend. He could be your your uncle. He could be somebody, of the person that you work with. And I think that that's how America has shifted a little bit, is that even though we are still segregated, we have, especially our younger people, wide range of friends. Right. And there's a lot of communication happening. And so when that happens, I think they're saying, this this is some serious mess. I mean, we also have bystanders who have no skin in the game, who are completely innocent, telling them, let the guy breathe. I mean, yeah. you have you have outside perspectives who have no reason to be in trouble with the police, who are completely right. innocent, informing the police what they are doing are wrong right. is wrong, and they just don't care. I mean, this thing had kind of the perfect coming together of a lot of things, and the biggest thing, I think, was, like you said, time. Yeah. It was a long time where this guy is completely... Uh, think of the privilege <laughs> to be just... And I, I don't use the term privilege a lot, yeah. I mean, but... You're standing, you're sitting on a guy's neck. People are around you taking videos of you and you're just still doing it. Right. That's power. Mm -hmm. I mean, think of that's power. The, 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 it's so much power that bystanders like myself <coughs> would be worried they would be shot if they tried to help the man. Exactly. And that's a scary amount of power for, for the police to have. And I think America is asking, is this what we want America to be? Right. Do you expect, I mean, we say that, you know, we talk about the Constitution, we talk about the Declaration of Independence, and we hold these truths to be self-evident, all men are created equal. Bam. I mean, it didn't look that equal when no one felt that they had the ability to say stop. The minute that guy was handcuffed, y'all's job on top of him is done. Exactly. At that point, he goes in the back of your car. If you've got a reason to arrest him, I mean, that, 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 there's just, and legally there are so many things that kick in the minute they handcuff him, and they just ignore all of that. All those things they had been taught their whole career for what? Yeah. Forgery? And you know the people yeah. wanted to stop it. Yeah. But they had been so, what do you do? And I think that maybe that's why people are marching now is because the people who were there that were video and that, were, that was all that they could do, that they had been so browbeaten in a sense and convinced that you don't do anything or else that's you. That's. It's an odd amount of power. I mean, judge, jury, and executioner. When we start to look at what happens in countries that we see as developing and the police systems that emerge in those countries, that's what we expect there. Right. We don't, I think for many, a large percentage of Americans, they don't see that as America. I think for a certain segment, 
they understand. Yeah, and let's talk about that. I mean, I think that's a really good point because I have a friend here who I who I think is a wonderful human being with a wonderful heart. Um, and I had to, you know, he him and I have this long discussion about well, that doesn't happen in San Antonio. I said, okay, well, just take any any black friend of yours and ask them how many times you get pulled over by the cops in any given year. And I asked Brian, and he said four times in a normal year. I haven't been pulled over four times in my life. I mean, the experience <laughs> is just entirely different. What? And I, I kind of want to talk more about San Antonio now. What do you think San Antonio's focus should be to, one, make sure that this doesn't happen here, and two, create an environment to where my friend, who has the world's biggest heart, has more empathy and understanding for what somebody else is going through who happens to be a different skin color. Cause I can tell them all I want, but unless they have a friend going through it or unless yeah. they've seen it, they don't understand it. I think for San Antonio, a couple of things that we have that I think as a city would be good for us to kind of move out of kind of a cocoon. I think we believe that things, bad things happen outside of San Antonio, that San Antonio is this kind of oasis in which we don't have race problems. Um, that's untrue. Right. Um, there's this feeling that San Antonio didn't have racism and discrimination as much as other places. It may not have been like Birmingham, but historically, if you go, there are instances of where police killed young black men. Um, you know, that's, but even historically, as you look up there, there was, um, there were segregation laws in San Antonio. Um, there was a swimming pool law yeah. that was passed Juneteenth. Um, I believe 1954, um, city council actually passed a segregation law on Juneteenth, mm. June 19th, which is the day we celebrate yeah. emancipation. City council passed a segregation law. Now they rescinded it a year later, but it was still passed. Sure. Um, the Majestic Theater was segregated. Um, so there's a long legacy of Courthouses. segregation here. We have, you know, Redlining in the in the 1930s really divided the city north, south, east, and west, um, and then you have restrictive covenants that basically banned African Americans or others from coming into those areas. And so the reason that we have the city that we have is because of the legacy of discrimination, and it wasn't just against blacks; it was against Latinos as well. Um, and then as we look at that, we also have to recognize that. African Americans are about eight to ten percent of the population, somewhere around there, right. and a large part of that is military. But I think sometimes that plight gets kind of drowned out, um, which I don't think is right. I mean, I, I think that we should pay more attention to that, and not just say that we all get along in San Antonio. I think that there's, if you talk to African Americans, they're not saying that, right. but there's a perception in the city that that's the reality. Um, if you look at where African-Americans are living, um, it's a kind of a microcosm of America in, you know, and the kinds of economic progress that we've had. Is it better here than in other areas? I don't think so. And so when we, I say there's this image of San Antonio that we kind of need to unpack to see the real San Antonio. Right. Um, there are not a lot of black professors in San Antonio. If you look at the black professional numbers, they're not that high. And really, if you look at San Antonio up to Austin, um, a lot of African-Americans say that that whole, you know, as we talk about the, that corridor being the corridor of great growth, it's not a corridor that's bringing in a lot of African-Americans from outside. So you might start to see over time a percentage drop of African-Americans. In Austin, it's already happening by percentage. Yeah. 
of people not moving who are African-American into those areas. And so we say that this is an area that's developing business-wise. We're creating all these businesses. The question is, are these businesses that are actively looking towards hiring African-Americans, or is this a city that African-Americans are actively looking to move to? I think there are questions on both ends. Yeah. I think there's a perception, but it's not a perception that African-Americans have offered. It's a perception that's kind of offered it on top of African-Americans. And, and is the answer to sort of incorporate um, all communities together? I mean, look, everybody knows the East Side is sort of the largest population of African-Americans right. in San Antonio. Um, does that create a scenario in which people just kind of ignore the plight because they are in their own area and they have their own issues and their own problems? Would it, would it be alleviated by making sure that opportunities were there for everybody to live amongst one another? I think, I think you could look at it both ways. I think on one, the reason that we have the council district system, the way that we have is because of, you know, and we should create district two and all of those was, I guess in the late 70s, a way of trying to give equal representation or trying to find a way for blacks on the east side and others to have representation where you have kind of districts voting in people versus a citywide. Yeah. Um, I wonder, and I'm just thinking now, yeah. is that the kind of city we still want? And I, I'm, I'm not saying that it is. I'm not saying that it isn't. Yeah. But I think that we might want to take a look at, our. I guess it's the charter that we have. Or however we elect districts, however we elect councilmen. Um, because African Americans are not just living on the east side. I'm not even sure that's a majority district anymore. Um, they're living all around in the north side, in the northeast side. You see a lot of African Americans on those sides. Yeah. And I think that that might, I think that in some senses, it, there's this image of the black power structure still coming out of the east side. And I think that there's a large number of African-Americans who don't have that access that are on other sides of the city that have contributions as well. Now, that didn't quite answer the question that no, you that's were fair asking. Though. But I would also think that in looking at the kinds of jobs, we as a, we're still a service sector city. Sure. Um, I think if we're going to move forward, we're going to have to be a city that will attract the pearl – it's not necessarily the most place that's going to attract a large African-American population. Um, I agree. And I think that as we promote those things, and we should, yeah. um, there has to, I think there's maybe a tone depth that that may not attract certain segments of our community, perhaps Latino and African-American and Asian perhaps. Right. I, I think we need to be much more specific in our outreach and the kinds of people that we're looking. We want all to right. come here. I don't know if we make that a convincing case in the way that we promote the city. As we move forward sort of through this, I'm going to call it an opportunity uh, to address some racial issues. Um, where can people look? So either for guidance or what's going on in terms of our own city. So there doesn't seem to be a strong voice that has come out in this, in this sort of discussion as it relates to San Antonio uh, am I missing that? Is there one? Is there a group that has sort of been tapped by the city <laughs> to create these conversations and help? Or are we still kind of swimming upstream a little we're bit? we're swimming. Okay. And I think that's a large part because of COVID. Yeah. I think um, people's lives have been torn apart. Sure. I mean, lot, I mean, the unemployment rate is horrible right now. And for African Americans, all of the progress, if we want to say that, it might take black wealth with COVID down to zero yeah. on average. 
Um, and so because of that, I think people, how do you organize when you can't meet, when you're still socially distancing? And so right. I think as we start to come out of this, I think groups like the NAACP, I'm going to specifically say them, um, but I'm also going to say the Black Ministers Union, I think you're going to start to see them have a larger role. Um, but I think it's very difficult for them as it is for anybody. And COVID has run roughshod over the African-American community. I mean, we're twice as likely, in a sense, to catch this. I was scared. That's one of the reasons yeah. why it took some time for us to get together. Um, and I think that when people are, are under those conditions, it's hard to start to think long-term because how do you build the apparatus to do so? But kind of the protests are making it to where we have to consider it. They're, it, yeah, they're loud think, enough we can't ignore it until the, I think so. the I think sickness is done. And I think the question is what happens after you cannot protest forever. Right. And at some point we're going to have to sit down and I'm not devaluing the protest at all. They have um, the protest, which is different from a riot and the other kinds of things. The protest I think have created really important conversations that we're now taking in, but now's the time to sit at the table and start thinking policy initiatives, but also think heart initiatives. I don't think policy get, I don't think that policy and just the vote gets us out of the heart. Yeah. Because there's a reason you can have every law against the cop and he still could kill George Floyd. Yeah. It's what changes a person's heart. And it's that empathy. And I talked about this a week ago. Studies show that Americans have less empathy for other people. Mm over the last 40 years, that we've, the, the ability for us to consider somebody else has dropped. Now, that's not good when you say that 40 years ago, we were, you know, 40 or 50 or 60 years, we were segregated. But maybe because of cell phones, maybe we've lost that human touch. And so maybe that's why the cop could stand over George Floyd and just choke the hell out of him and just look at a camera. He doesn't care one iota that that's a human being. In the way that we talk about our politics, we have Republicans and Democrats just absolutely hating each other. Right. I hate, you know, people say, I hate Republicans. I hate Democrats. I can't, I can't date a Republican. I can't date a Democrat. I don't want to be around them. I'm going to defriend them on Facebook. We have had a generation of defriending, lack of conversation across boundaries, and it's created, I think, a mentality of not being able to empathize with others and to work with others. And so voting is important. Go out and vote. Changing the police contract, got to do that. Making sure there's some type of accountability, that has to happen. We need to work with the income gap. But you can't do any of that unless if you have empathy. And you wouldn't want to unless you, you felt empathetic. Yeah. How do we deal with the income gap if people aren't open to hiring people of different backgrounds for jobs and looking beyond a person's name? Right. Or looking at standards and saying, maybe these standards aren't exactly fair. Maybe I'm undervaluing a person's contribution to this job because they're working on things that I'm not giving them credit for working on. Right. Um, that's where the heart comes in. And I think that, you know, we think about Martin Luther King and other black leaders of the past and all the great leaders, they didn't just talk about um, laws. Martin Luther King and Gandhi and all, they all talked about a beloved community. Well, that's a legal aspect, it's a political aspect, but it's also a social aspect. You can't, a law can't change a person's heart. 
that comes from the person. That comes from the environment. And that's what I think we have a chance with here is that it seems that people empathize with George Floyd. I think that's exactly right. In a different kind of way that they many did not empathize with Trayvon Martin or Emmett Till or Maude Arbery. Yeah. Um, and that, of all of the things that's happened, has been the thing that stunned me. Because, you know, people say, well, what did you think when you saw? I didn't think anything. I mean, when I say I didn't think anything, it's not like I haven't seen a video showing a black man get killed or beat up. But that's where others have changed, I think, how we look at this. I hope so, because after Sandy Hook, I thought that was going to change the discussion on guns, and it didn't change anything. And I, I, I was very dis- – I'm not saying I'm for this or for that, but mm-hmm. it should have changed the conversation, and it didn't. And I hope that this opportunity isn't wasted by poor leadership, um, and I'm not even going to call it leadership, by loud voices getting in the way of the movement. Because I think some of them are just people who have a platform and they're going to make it about them. And I also hope it does not get lost in the people that say, give me an inch, I'm going to take a mile, who now say we want to get rid of police departments entirely. I mean, that's not productive either. So that's my concern on this opportunity. And I hope some leaders step up within that this opportunity. And you know, we were talking before you got here. I was talking with Brian before you got here about how some of the big voices, African-American voices in elected politics are noticeably absent in this. I mean, Kamala's kind of noticed. Tim Scott kind of kind of absent in these discussions where their voices probably are needed at this moment. You know, and that's I think that's an unfortunate. Um, I don't even know why that's happening, but I think it's unfortunate that it is happening in this moment. I think so. I think we do. Moments don't last forever. You only have a small opportunity to seize a time period. Right. Um, that's what history tells us. And if you go beyond that time period, the opportunity's gone. Right. Um, this is an opportunity, but we now have to step back and look at it and evaluate it and see what can actually be done and what can bring a consensus together. Right. It's got to be a consensus. We have. To, I think there's an opportunity to bring many cops along the way on this issue. I agree. I believe it. I believe there's a way of getting, you know, Greg Abbott and others on board to something. We're we're all agreeing with that. Let's see what we can get. Let's not do what we did with healthcare in the early nineties when we said if I don't get everything I want, it's all gone. Yeah. That's not healthy. We've got to help the people that we can help now. Um and then and and the income gap Addressing that addresses people from all walks of life. Exactly. That is not, it's a, not just a it's an African-American thing. thing. Yeah, it's in everybody. This city, we are one of the most unequal cities in this nation, and it's because of policies, yeah. and there's a reason for it. Um, recognizing it and being intentional, and I know our mayor is, and I know he has his equity program, Yeah. Um, but all Americans should want a better America for all Americans. And COVID's highlighting that as well. I mean, there's a strange confluence of events right now that if we don't capitalize on it right now, when will we? I mean, everything's accentuated. Everything's highlighted. People can't live off $600 a month unemployment. And that's what they're expected to do right now. You know, when you think about, you know, we, the drug wars should have shown us (laughs) that you cannot dismiss a community and it not to spread to other communities. Right. There was this feeling in the 80s that that's just what's happening in poor black and, let, and brown communities were primarily black communities. 
it didn't just stay there. Same with now HIV. We have, now we have an opioid situation <laughs> where it's interesting of how our empathy has shifted from what happened during the crack years. Mm-hmm. But why do we only have empathy for people that look like us? We're all connected. That's why I often talk about my ancestry, and it's the ancestry of every American. Right. We're all mixed. And there are many people who claim to be white but got black ancestors that they don't know about it because black people crossed over so many times. <laughs> Why can't we see ourselves as one body and one people that have different experiences that make us stronger? Because what affects me affects you. I may be more likely to catch COVID, but if I cough on you, you're going to get it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so to think that we may not be empathetic or have compassion for somebody because they look different or we think that they're different. It's ridiculous. I agree and, with you. And the COVID thing, you know, I knew it was going to, you know, issues of diabetes, issues of high blood pressure. Hypertension. These, hypertension. Obesity. These are issues that are tied to class, you know, socioeconomic status. It's tied to the lack of groceries in certain neighborhoods. It's tied to stress. Um, I sometimes, you know, people say, well, why aren't you always talking about the issues? That's stressful to constantly be talking about George Floyd every day. Mm-hmm. That's the burden that the African-American often is held accountable for. But the amount of stress that comes because of that has a contribution to a person's health. So race and racism has a negative effect on a person's health because Stress can cause hypertension. Yeah. Stress can cause you to be obese. Stress can cause, I suspect, diabetes. So all of that is the implicit or the... Structural. The structural, the, the consequences of structural racism is the consequences of the America that we've created. Do you think it's not stressful for a person to be surrounded as a cop beats a person that looks up like at you and you can't do anything. Everybody was traumatized. Yeah. yeah. I think about Emmett Till's mother. Um, her son, horrifically beaten, she opens a casket. It's on the page in the newspaper, see. wasn't it? But the pain, yeah. yeah. But the pain that that mother had to experience to, in a sense, sacrifice her own son. And people say, well, you did a good job. But I think about her heart and the consequences of that that, that must have been to her heart. That's why we should ask that. That's why it's better for us. And then if I go to a doctor, and I do, but there's a likelihood that many doctors don't think that African-Americans feel pain the same kind of way. Is that true? Yes, that they can take it better. That's one of the reasons that we have the opioid environment. It's not because oh. more, some doctors have been found to be more likely to prescribe opioids to other people because mm. of the feeling of, that blacks have this ability, innate ability to handle pain. Well, there was this thought that blacks didn't catch certain diseases back during slavery. When COVID started, they discussed how nobody in Africa had it, and exactly. therefore they had some sort of secret sauce and, and or the hydroxychloroquine because of malaria. I mean, now African Americans do have some predisposition, you know, they do have some protection against malaria because of the sickle cell trait or yeah. disease, which can is a gives you some protection, but that's a whole different thing. And sickle cell is pain yeah. for the people that have to struggle through that. My mother had sickle cell and it, it, it eventually she died because of it. Yeah. But 
these are things that are in the African-American community that have existed. And as a nation, I don't think we've come together to say, let's take this load off a little bit. It's on all of us. Yeah. We've contributed a lot. I think it's now all of our responsibility to lessen that a little bit. I think San Antonio is the type of city that wants to know how to get better. And I hope we figure out a way to have these conversations because I think people genuinely want to make the city better, which is different than some cities, I think. Um, You're now officially my longest episode ever, but I've really enjoyed this. I don't want to end this just yet because uh, there was an article in the paper I looked at. Uh, I want to end with you just giving me a little bit of an idea. There was there's a plan at some point to create an African-American Institute to sort of discuss mm-hmm. San Antonio to, to highlight some of its history. It sounds like to even be a location for lectures and discussions. Uh, what is sort of the planned goal or hope in the future with what y'all can do? We hope that we can create a center that would be able to present African-American history um, and the kind of history that people don't know about all the time um, and the people that people don't know about. We think of you know, one of the things that we have with African-American history is we think of the great people, but there's a larger apparatus that underpins that, and so we want to provide some focus for that. We also want to talk about things in that, maybe through public art and other ways that African-Americans have contributed, and to kind of show that to the city. And so the center is not just a space, but it's also an outside space for people to be able to see how the buildings were integrated and, and, and how the lunch counters were integrated in San Antonio. Um, or should I say desegregated, um, and how schools were desegregated. And so there's a broader story that I would hope that this institute would show, but also allowing for internships and other kinds of things that Mm -hmm. students and others can have a way of actually being active in not just the past, but also creating that better future working with the city and working with other people. So the center is a broad idea, but yes, showing history, showing it in artwork, having a space that... Um, can host events, but also creating a space where we can actually do some work that makes these things better. Maybe we can have a kind of apparatus that will allow for the cops to come to us or the union come to us yeah. and, and talk about these sure. things. And um, is the is the plan to have that somewhere downtown? Yes. Okay. Um, I think we talked there's sort of some unknowns for everything there's a right lot now. Of unknowns yeah. right now, so that's why I'm a little vague. Yeah, that's fair um, enough. But the the plan is. You know, it's needed in the city, um, but I hope and I would expect that this can be done in a way that contributes something to the city. And just like everything else, I think it the idea that I have for it is a positive center. Um, we can't always be just negative about our history. Mm-hmm. We have to approach it as far as what can we accomplish. It's the same thing that I feel about the protests right now. Let's take the positive from this. George Floyd was not a positive event. Right. But let's find a way to actually make something work for the benefit of people and to not just snatch defeat out of the out of in a sense out of victory. Yeah. By trying to blow up everything in a sense. Let's find and so the center is gonna be about a place of creating solutions and finding and placing people in the environment where they can do that and to not just talk about the problems to act on them. I think it's great because I've I've heard and then I've heard people be corrected discuss San Antonio in terms of we never had that sordid history that a lot of cities had 
and you'll hear some people say it and you'll hear some people say it and then get corrected by somebody else. And really there's not a lot of great information out there on sort of our history as it relates to race relations in San Antonio. So I think it'd be a great addition to the city. Um, But at the same time, San Antonio is not going to be like Richmond, Virginia or Birmingham. Right. Eight to 10% is not going to give you, it, it gives a distorted view of what they're facing because you don't see them every day. And also maybe African-Americans weren't seen as the same kind of a threat as they were in Birmingham sure. or Richmond or Winston-Salem or Greensboro or places like that. At the same time, we have a military population. And one of the things that does temper the racial climate, at least on the surface, is you have the military. And military establishments provided really the first space where African-Americans could have really good professional jobs because, you know, a number of executive orders allowed force those establishments to that be racist in the way that they gave jobs. Right. And so to keep government funding coming in, those bases had to be not racial right. in the way, or at least saying that they were, and it provided an environment where you had some progress. But under that surface was this layer that existed throughout the South and America. Racism is not just a Southern problem. Right. You know, you have it out West, you've got it in the Southwest, you've got it in the North. Boston certainly is not a racially liberal environment. You know, busing was not an issue in the South as it was in the North. And so we cannot look at San Antonio and just say, because we don't see hoses and dogs biting people, that it doesn't exist. You don't have to have those things to have race problems. Right. And those things didn't happen everywhere, even in the South. You can't use that as a comparison to say we don't have problems. No, I think that's why it'd be great to have. Yeah, we still, the economics are still there. Right. And and the living experiences are still there. And when you talk to the older African Americans, um, talking to them off the record, there were some things here that happened that were just horrific. But even they don't want to say that openly. Well, that will those oral histories be be preserved in the yes. in the center so if it I've gets up and going. I've started to do a number of oral okay. histories um, in which are will be available to the public. Are you recording them or yes. writing them? All right. Recording. Great. One of the things about recording is that you can get the feel of people's pain yeah. in the way that they talk and you can feel it when you write it you can't feel how a person is saying it and also Sometimes when you listen to a person and you see a person, you can kind of figure out where they're going and what they're not giving you. Yeah. You follow them because they give you little hints. Sancho never had any problems. (laughs) Where do you plan to publish those at? Um, They'll be at Trinity. Okay. You got to get them through Trinity. All right. In time when I put them all together. Yeah. Um, Will you come back on if and when this institute gets up and running? Of course. Um, Maybe we could do a, we could, we could actually bring this equipment and do an episode there. Absolutely. It would be awesome, actually. It would be Um, an honor. All right. So, first of all, uh, let me thank you for being the longest-running guest, and thank you for coming during all this. Maybe the most talkative guest. Is that what it is? I (laughs) talk more than I don't think so. But, I mean, the the intent was not to have you come on and talk about George Floyd. The time's here. Thank you for doing that. Our city has a lot of issues to deal with, um, but we also do well in terms of motivation, which I think is the important part. We want to be better. Um, So that's going to – I agree with that. Good. And you have a totally different perspective, so I'm glad you do agree with, and I'm not completely tone deaf. So I think it's important I'm not tone deaf, honestly. Um, That's going to do it for this episode. Uh, Dr. Lattimore, thank you so much for being here. This will be up 
Um, next week for you, for all of our listeners, it'll be up the day you're listening to it. Uh, our guest wish list continues. Uh, Patty Mills, Shea Serrano, Coach Pop, we'd love to have any of y'all on. Uh, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Alamo Hour. You are all what make this city so great. We hope you join us next week. In the meantime, subscribe to our podcast. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash alamohour or our website, alamohour.com. Until next time, viva San Antonio.